You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the show. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. I'm Stu Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Steve Agee, who you will know if you are a fan of what I call the James Gunn cinematic universe. I'm desperately hoping that catches on. It's a bit pathetic in many ways. Um, But uh, if you are a fan of uh, not only his incredible work with Marvel, but also The Suicide Squad, you will know Steve Agee as John Economus, who is the... um, uh, the tall, bearded schlub, I guess, who uh, is part of the team of Are There Goodies, Are There Baddies, working under Amanda Waller. If you have seen Peacemaker, which if you have not, I cannot recommend enough. It's like a standout TV show for me from the last few years. Uh, he has a wonderful role in that, reprising the character of John Economist and uh, deepening it, enriching it. And also he has one of the most satisfying narrative arcs in any series. So get a load of that stuff. I was very lucky to uh, to meet Steve and talk to him uh, at uh, South by Southwest. This is a live interview in front of a live audience and it was a, a whole lot of fun. And I have to say, Steve was unbelievably classy and uh, I kind of hung out with him for a few hours after the recording. And he was one of those. And this is the mark of class for me. Um, every single person that walked past or sat down near us or said hi to him, he'd go, hey, do you know Stu? And it was just one of those classy kind of moments where you just think, what an absolutely sensational dude. So I really hope I run into him again soon. Um, a huge thanks to him for coming on the show and talking about the following things. Uh, we're going to talk about his role in the uh, Sarah Silverman show as Steve. Um, you remember Steve and Brian from the Sarah Silverman show. Uh, we're also going to talk about being sent to military academy as a child, his compulsive fear of throwing up. Um, and we're going to talk about how James Gunn's loyalty saved him after a profoundly unpleasant and and trying pandemic experience uh, in which Steve very sadly lost his mother. Uh, all of that as well as some uh, some really kind of candid and uh, very open stuff about his history of suffering panic attacks. This is a belter of an episode. I'm very proud to bring it to you. Um, thanks to Charlie and everyone at South by and everyone on the tech team that looked after me and, and helped sort this one out. And without further ado, this is Steve Agee. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Uh, we're going to talk about your comedy. And I was excited to learn earlier on, we've only just met. Uh, yeah. I was excited to learn that you are doing your first gig here at the festival tonight. Your first stand-up gig for how long? Uh, over three years. Mm-hmm. COVID kind of stopped everything. And then uh, 
you know, I started working, shooting stuff. And then uh, next thing I know, I get a call going, do you want to do South by Southwest? And I was like, holy shit, I have not done stand up in almost four years, just not even aware of it. And yeah. I started looking through old set lists and was like, oh, my God, I don't remember any of these jokes. <laughs> like recent set lists. I was like, oh, no. And this this is a recurring uh, stress dream that I have. I, for a decade, have a recurring dream where I go to a theater in Los Angeles to watch Sarah Silverman perform. <laughs> and I go backstage and we're talking before the show and someone comes in and goes, Sarah, your opener uh, had to cancel. And she goes, why doesn't Steve do it? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, no problem. They're like, okay, you're on in 10 minutes. And I sit down and I go, I don't remember any of my jokes. Sarah, I don't remember any of my jokes. And I get out a piece of paper and I'm like, Sarah, what are some of my jokes? And she's like, how the fuck would I know what your jokes are? And every couple minutes, a guy comes in, he's like, five minutes, two minutes. And I'm like, Sarah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and then it always ends with me walking out onto stage. And, and what do you think? And that- now I'm living this reality of <laughs> 10 p.m. tonight, the great Reggie Watts and Eric Andre and then Mr. Forgetful. I was about to say, what do you think this dream means? But it's the most literal dream I think I've it ever heard. It is a very literal dream today. <laughs> so we're going to talk We're going to talk about your comedy. We're going to talk about your amazing work uh, on TV and okay. uh, in movies. But first, the starting point I would like to address, I think in over 400 episodes, I have never had a guest before who went to military school. And that oh, yeah. sounds like a staggeringly American thing that I can't even It imagine. is very American. Well, not really even. It's uh, I went to the military school. I don't know if anyone here ever saw the movie Taps. Yeah. Well, if you're in your 40s or above, there's a good chance you saw it. It was like Tom Cruise's first movie, Sean Penn, Timothy Hutton. Um, and... Uh, it's about a, a military school in Pennsylvania, and uh, it has to shut down. They're going to turn it into parking lots or whatever. And all the students in this movie revolt. They don't want the military school to shut down. When I was there, if they had said, hey, guys, um, we're out of money. we got to close the school down. We would have been, hey, let's start packing now. We would have been helping them pack. We would have been singing and dancing. What? How did you end up there? Like what? Kind oh, of- I got kicked out of a lot of schools. My okay. parents did not know what to do with me. Um, I got kicked out of a school, <laughs> school for cutting the roof off of a shop teacher's Cadillac with a welding torch. <laughs> That's... One of the things that I did. I'm struggling to imagine. It was all fueled by alcohol, too. Okay, I was okay, okay. 15 years old. That's an insane. Yeah, I had a taste for the booze when I was a teenager. Did you think you were going to get away with doing that? Or was it a deliberate, like, hey, I didn't I'm gonna think about it? So extreme. If I had thought about it, I would have been like, oh, that's. That would probably get me kicked out of school. I, I didn't think about it. I just okay. did. I would do stuff like. Now that I'm saying this stuff out loud, it sounds like I have really <laughs> fucked up mental health issues. But like I took a welding class and uh, when we did arc welding, which is like really like bright, you have to wear like Darth Vader helmets that are so dark. If you're not looking at what you're welding, you can't see anything. 
And so my my neighbor who was at his welding station is doing his arc welding. It was also in the wood shop room. So I would go into the barrel of sawdust and just dump it where he was welding and start <laughs> fires. This isn't getting the laughs that I was hoping it would get. It's really, it really is disturbing. And uh, this, that's probably, out, that's about how my parents reacted. They're like, we have to send him to military school. I want to get a sense of. So this that- was also Valley Forge Military Academy in Pennsylvania, which was the basis for Pensy Prep in Catcher in the Rye. Okay. J.D. Salinger was an alumnus. Alumni? Alumnus? Alumnus. Well, and um, yeah, it was like a legitimate hardcore wake up five o'clock in the morning, go, you know, do calisthenics and jog two miles and then come back to the barracks, not the dorm and like wax the floors and polish your shoes, then go to breakfast, then go to school all day and try not to fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Was anyone, did anyone there enjoy it or was it all a punishment for everyone? There's a few people who are like into it. It's a lot like an animal house. There was the, you know, there are like, there's like the guy, is that a, you know, pledge pin on your uniform? The guy from the Twisted Sister video who they're really into it. Okay. They like playing army and they, a lot of them go on to be in the army. But most of it, I tell people who have, you know, troubled youths, I'm like, just don't send your kid to military school because you're sending them to a school that is comprised of the all-stars of fuck-ups. Like, it's fuck-ups from South America, fuck-ups from Sweden, fuck-ups from Los Angeles, New York. Just the the best fuck-ups, best fuck-up, like the biggest fuck-ups all in one school. I was drinking in high school like a lot of people, but, like, I discovered acid and weed and, like... A so, lot of drugs when I went to military so school. So I want to know who you were before then that you discovered alcohol. Were you? Tr- what problem were uh, you trying to solve with I was, alcohol? I wasn't trying to solve any problem. I was just a, like a freshman. I was very shy. I shot up like, you know, eight inches of height in like a summer. I was just gangly and awkward. And two seniors one night took me out. We went to a liquor store, paid a homeless guy to buy us three bottles of Boone's Farm, and then <laughs> then we went to uh, a vacant lot and okay. just sat up on a hill looking over Riverside, California, drinking Boone's Farm. I was terrified because I have a fear of throwing up, so I was like, as I'm drinking it, all I could ask these guys is, this isn't going to make me throw up, right? Am I going to throw up? And they're just like, shut the fuck up and drink. You're going to be fine. And... I, I loved it. Like yeah, I okay. started laughing. I became really like extroverted. Okay. And from that point on, like I would go to parties and just drink and I was not shy anymore. Okay. Okay. It was. So there over- was, there was like, you say you weren't trying to solve a problem, but there was some kind of like, but it, I was, but I wasn't, something. I didn't realize it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, so you went to military school. How long were you there for? Two years, junior and senior year. And do you think, like, were there any benefits to it, or did you hate it, or did I you did get, get on with it? I did get straight A's once I went there. Okay. Because there's a period at the end of the day where you are in your room and you are not allowed to leave for two hours. It's the study period, and so you have to sit there, and you have to sit at your desk. You can't just lay on your bunk. You have to sit at your desk. Doors have to be open. They have guards 
that walk up and down the hallway and they make sure that you're sitting at your desk. So you're sitting there and you're like, fuck, I might as well read that chapter of American history. And you do it. And you're then the next day you're like, holy shit, I remember that from last night. And you're like, holy shit, this is really easy when you apply yourself. So what, you, what you're saying is it worked. Yeah, yeah it did work. And did you, like, what was your emotional reaction to it? Like, this kind of, like, punishment. Like, my school days wrecked my life, and that wasn't military school. Like, I still feel the kind of resonance, the reverberation of the time I had at school. I felt betrayed by my parents. Yeah. You know, it came out of nowhere. I had been kicked out of a second school, and um, at the end of the year, they're like, not kicked out, but the year ran out, and they're like, he can't come back. And... The whole summer went by, and my parents never said anything. It was me in August, at the end of summer, that went to my parents and was like, uh, we should probably think about school. <laughs> like, And they're like, that's when they said, we have, um, we're sending you to military school. And I lost my shit. I'm like running around the house screaming like, fuck, no, what are you out of your mind? I'm losing my mind. They finally calmed me down. They're like, just try it. If it doesn't work out, you can come back. And I was like, okay, when do I have to go? And they're like, in three days. I was like, no, I have to say goodbye to all my friends. What are you? I, I really, in my head, I thought I was being shipped off to like Germany to fight the, the Nazis because I was like, hey, that's not enough time to say goodbye to every. In my head, I was like, I'm never coming back, but I was back at every holiday, okay. you know? Okay. And did you carry that resentment with you after you left? For a while, yeah. As an adult now, I get it. But I'm still like, don't send your troubled teen to military school. Because they're going to meet some next level troubled teens who... (laughs) I mean, I learned about hash in like junior year. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. (laughs) Still great. (laughs) (laughs) So it introduced you to a world of drugs and kind of soft crime, I guess, from what you're describing. But you also got straight A's. So yeah. you became like a, a more effective dropout. Uh, I was a dropout. functional, <laughs> yeah, like degenerate. I was a functional degenerate. I'm glad we're recording this because I'm probably going to make that the name of my autobiography someday. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there is something of the uh, functional degenerate in stand-up comedy, right? That's sure, it, that's, yeah. it, that's a structure within within sure. which one can be a functional degenerate. Sure. When did you, after leaving military school, like what was the next chapter? How did you bring yourself to comedy after that? Um, well, I always, I wanted to do comedy. I wanted to do acting from a, a very young age. When I was about 10 years old, uh, I think it was my aunt or my uncle bought me a transistor radio. And this was like 1979. And it, there's no internet back then. I just get this transistor radio, and it's got a mono earplug. And every Sunday night, when my parents would make me go to bed, I would listen to Dr. Demento, which was syndicated all over the country. He was based in Los Angeles. But that radio program, every Sunday, turned me on to every form of comedy. Sketch comedy, musical comedy, Weird Al, stand-up comedy, Um and I fell in love with George Carlin as like a 10 and 11 year old. The first album I ever bought with my own money as an 11 year old child was George Carlin's A Place for My Stuff. I didn't understand 80% of the jokes. Yeah, right. 
there was something about his delivery and just the uh, enthusiasm in his voice that I loved. And just listening to the audience's laugh, I loved it. For years growing up, all through my teenage years, I was I just thought people in TV and comedy and even drama, just any form of entertainment, were born into that world. Some people are, but I didn't know that was an option. My dad was a, a anesthesiologist. My mom was a nurse. Nobody in my family was created. I, I was also adopted, by the way, but nobody in my family, my adoptive family, was creative. So it never occurred to me that I could just... I grew up an hour outside of L.A. I didn't go to L.A. until I was like 20 years old. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me like, hey, all that shit you love is like a 45-minute drive away. (laughs) So so when did you realize that? So when you were 20? Well, when I was... uh, After I graduated military school, I didn't know what to do. Um, All my friends were going to college. Um... I didn't want to, but I knew my parents wanted me to. I missed all of my friends from the last two years of military school. So they were all going to this private Christian college, Loma Linda University in Riverside, California. They had a great biology, like pre-med program. And I grew up, I was also surfing a lot when I was a teenager, scuba diving, snorkeling, spent a lot of time on Catalina Island. So I was like, I could be a marine biologist. So my first semester of college, I went as a biology major. I was like, I'll take biology classes, and when I get all my credits, I'll go to a school, you know, like Long Beach State or something that has a marine biology program. And I fell right back into my, like, I couldn't grasp the, you know. The weird thing about biology, when you are a major in biology, is any you start college as like an 18-year-old child and they're throwing cellular biology at you that is so like, if you've ever gotten really high and watched, you know, like any of these, you know, space shows on like the History Channel, you know, with like Neil deGrasse Tyson, you're like, uh, that was me. My whole first semester of college, I was like, I don't understand any of this. I feel like you should start the opposite way. When you're starting with teenagers, teach them shit like, this is a cow. It's a mammal. It's a mammal because it gives milk to its children. Like, that's the level of biology they should be teaching teenagers. And then as you get older, work their way down into, like, mitochondria, cell division, like, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. I'm a stupid person, by the way, Uh, you know, Uh, so I went undeclared the rest of the year. The next year I changed to an art major because I like to draw and stuff. And so I got a degree in painting. Okay. But it was while I was in college, I started playing guitar and bass guitar. My roommate was in a band there. This is like a story out of a movie. Their bass player broke his arm. He's like, hey, you want to come play some songs with us? And then all of a sudden I was in a band in college. And that's what got me to Los Angeles. We moved to Los Angeles to be a band. I went to a music school for a year. This is I know this is crazy. If you ask 20 different actors how they got their start, you will get 20 different stories. Like it was 
it was all I wanted to do since I was a child, but it was never my plan, if that makes any sense. Yes, got it. What kind of what kind of band were you in? What sort of music? It was like punk, you know. Okay. Yeah. Really fun shit. Okay. <laughs> like ex military school. Yeah, and then I then I came then I went to LA. I did a year of music school and playing with my band and then the band broke up and Everyone left, you know, I stayed in Los Angeles. Our singer went to a seminary to be a youth pastor. And my, our singer was a pastor. I'm still friends with him. And I stayed in LA and got really disillusioned. I played in many bands and just, I, I lived on Sunset Boulevard. I would walk to the whiskey and the Roxy and the Viper Room. And it just hit me like, Jesus, there's like 10 bajillion bands in LA alone. Yeah. That's just LA. And you have the added pressure of you have to work with others. Mm-hmm. Unlike comedy where you can do this shit yourself, you can fail on your own and yeah. you have no one to blame but yourself. And there is something as well that comedy, I think, to a, to a non-comedian or a pre, you know, pre-joining it person, yeah. um, it can feel like it's completely impossible. But yeah. I suppose if you've already slept around in a band, like compared to being a successful musician, yeah. comedy's arguably a lot easier, certainly yeah. in the UK. You know, you can you can make a living out of it faster. You can make money faster. Yeah. And as, I'll, by the way, while I was playing in bands in college, um, I was dipping my toes into stand-up comedy. It, oddly, it was my mother. I went home to visit her and my dad one weekend, and she had put out a newspaper clipping of an open mic night at this bar and I was like shit I can just go to this and so I wrote some jokes and I went to this bar I had all my friends come so I killed (laughs) you know it's funny because just kill all my friends were laughing very supportive friends I've always had that in my life and then that night the the promoter was like Jesus Christ, dude, that was great. You want to come back next week? I was like, yeah. The next week, I didn't tell any of my friends. And the same set that had taken me like 10, 15 minutes to go through, I rushed through in like three or four minutes because it was so silent and uncomfortable for me. I was like, oh, what's the deal with uh, newspapers? And Oh, the ink's all over my hand. Why is that? Okay. Um, I, I just couldn't wait to get the fuck off the stage. Had you written? Had you written the stuff? Had you sat and written some jokes? Or I'd written just... some jokes, yeah. Okay. Do you remember your first one? I remember m- the first joke I wrote, which was probably my best one of all of them. It and it had to do with um, um, I'm having this trouble in school right now because my father is in the hospital. Um, he is a doctor. Uh, you know, very yeah. <laughs> this is uh, Jesus Christ. I'm having flashbacks yeah. to. Uh, <laughs> This, I should have made it more clear at the beginning. This is a safe space in no, which to it's, dissect. No, it's fine. It's, uh, you know, it was a premise and, uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't expand on it, you know. I would never expand on premises. Okay. I'd come up with one setup and one line, whereas now you can, like, really just, you know, analyze a whole premise for 15 minutes. But you'd had, presumably you'd had that first working gig that you went, oh, I've tasted what it can be like when it's successful. So that then gets you through the tough one. Yes. So this is Steve, such a lovely guy. We will get back to the uh, the interview in just a moment. Um, just checking in to uh, just just to say really how much I respect Steve for really opening up about the the intricacies of his anxiety and this this sort of compulsive you know runaway mentality that he's that he's struggled with his whole life. That kind of the desire to flee. 
um, I think it's really interesting to hear people, particularly people who go on to be very successful and successfully manage those kind of uh, urges and compulsions. Um, I'm always grateful to hear when people share that because largely, I mean, over and above everything, it just makes all of those of us who sometimes suffer from those things feel less unusual and less um I was going to say less mad. That's kind of purgative. It's sort of it's not great language to use, is it? But that feeling of kind of confronting yourself and going, I'm feeling out of control about this thing. And you hear someone warm and lovely and witty talking about their struggles with it. That always makes me feel better. I hope it does you as well. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit at the end of this uh, episode, just to, to flag this up after the show. And if you stick around for the post amble, I'm going to talk a little bit about my friend Gareth Richards, a British comedian who who sadly passed away uh, a, a week ago as I'm recording this, and probably longer than that as you're hearing it. So uh, I'll I'll talk to you a little bit about Gareth in the post amble. Um, but back to happier things uh, for now. Before we get back to this uh, this episode with Steve, don't miss Steve's um, photography. You can go to agphotography.com or follow him on Instagram at Steve Ag. He's got some brilliant, brilliant portraiture and other really fascinating um, uh, photographs as well. I highly recommend Peacemaker. I can't I can't tell you enough. The suicide squad was a revelation of a movie to me because i didn't think i'd enjoy it and it completely blew my head off and to see one of the characters in it who is sort of less uh, focused upon thrive in their own show is is a great and glorious thing peacemaker itself you just watch the opening credits just watch the watch the first 10 seconds of the opening credits you'll find them on youtube somewhere and it will probably make you go oh i'm going to enjoy this and then you should uh, you should go along and enjoy it. So um, let's uh, oh let's just do some shout outs. Thanks thanks for um, I don't know if you caught the last episode my my new Edinburgh show spoilers my new festival show which I'm taking to Edinburgh um, later this year spoilers it won best new show at the Leicester Comedy Festival and you can catch up with it uh, by following links at stuartgoldsmith.com that's probably the easiest thing you can see previews there are various previews um, or follow the link tree in the bio in the show notes of this episode there's a bunch of previews happening on around the country uh, i think i'm going up to leeds i'm in london and bristol and cardiff and all over the place um so please come along and wherever the comedy crate is um so please come along and see one of the previews it is a a, a really important show to me and it's obviously of an award-winning standard uh so you all the more reason <laughs> yes you know you know my feelings about awards, but if you've got one, you might as well bang on about it. Oh, and the the other last thing is that I Need You Alive, by the time you hear this, will be available on YouTube at the £800 Gorilla uh, YouTube website. And the show notes will reflect that accordingly. I do hope you see that. Uh, it is a glorious thing. and I'm very proud. Right. Thank you. Let's get back to Steve Agee. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. What was the first kind of bit that you had where you were like, oh, this is a reliable bit? It didn't come till much later. I, I, I suffered through a lot of stand-up. I, and this was all while I was in college, so I had that to fall back on. I had my band to fall back on. This was all just ex- 
comedy was experimental for me. Um, so I would go, I would have a really bad set and I wouldn't do stand up again for a year. I'd be like, okay, I tried. Hey, I tried. Look at me. I tried. Not for me. And then something would always bring me back. Like, Hey, uh, there's an open mic here. I was like, oh, Jesus. Okay. Okay. I'll do that. And, but it wasn't until I was um, oddly doing the Sarah Silverman program and uh, oddly and sometimes unfairly being on a TV show opens up a lot of doors for you to perform in places where you should not perform. Uh, Zach Galifianakis was a guest on an episode of the Sarah Silverman show. That's where I met Zach and we were talking at lunch and he was like, I'm doing a show tonight at Largo. You want to do a set on my show? Largo is this great comedy venue in Los Angeles. Back in the 90, well, this was early 2000s, it was still in a small club on Los, or on Fairfax. Now it's a big theater, which is really lovely as well. But I went and I did this show, at, and it was a proper venue where it's like, you know, like a old coffee house from like the 60s where everyone's really into it. And it's it's like... Zach performed. I did some, you know, I did like 10 minutes and uh, E, the lead singer of the Eels, came up and did like five songs. And it was that really put the hook in me. Okay. Okay. Because that was like a really old room and they got you. Yeah. And they, they were just really nice. And like if they had not laughed or if they booed or anything, I probably would have gone another year or who yeah, knows. Okay. But. Sometimes it just all falls right into place. And with the Sarah Silverman show, so you played uh, Steve on that show. Yeah. Uh, and a couple with Brian, Brian Posehn. Brian Posehn, yeah. Um, tell me about that. Tell me about the process of making that show. Because that, that's one of those shows where um, it seems to the outside like, oh, Sarah has got some of her funny friends to play a mere version of themselves. pretty much it. Um, uh, I met Sarah. I did a play. Um, a friend of mine called me up one day and he's like, hey, I'm doing this play here in L.A. Uh, one of the guys dropped out on a coke bender. <laughs> he's gone. <laughs> we start in three days. We can't find the guy. We think he went to Vegas on coke. And this is the basis thing again. Kind of. Yes. Yeah. And uh, he's like, we need somebody, uh, somebody funny, somebody who can play guitar because it was a play about a band from the 80s. And um, so they, the guy who wrote the play, who this guy David Juskow, he didn't even like meet me. He's like, yes, he can do it. He was so freaked out over this guy dropping out of the play. And so I did that. And Dave David Juskow was best friends with Sarah Silverman. And so she was at opening night. Afterwards, she came up to me. She's like, hey, man, that was really funny. Um, she's like, do you do a lot of plays? I go, this is my first one. It's terrifying because I have a huge fear also, much like that stress dream of not remembering my dream, I have a fear acting-wise live on stage theater of forgetting lines. Yeah. Um, and so I told her that. I go, I have really bad anxiety. I have panic attacks. And she's like, hey, me too. You want to get high? And so <laughs> we went outside and smoked a joint. And Sarah and I were almost instantly best friends. We hung out together all the time. Um, and so when she had an earlier version of the Sarah Silverman program that she wrote 
as a pilot for HBO, and she wrote it with Larry Charles, who was a writer producer on Seinfeld. Um, he directed the first Borat movie. Really funny dude. It was starring her, Paul Rudd, and um, HBO didn't like it. And so she did a new one for Comedy Central, which is the one that you've seen on TV. And Sarah just wants, like a lot of comics, you see this with like Adam Sandler, like she wants to work with her friends. And I don't blame her. Like a lot of people work with people they're comfortable with. Christopher Nolan always works mm-hmm. with Killian Murphy and Michael Caine. And it's very common. You see, Sometimes you'll see it. And it's just blindingly like, holy shit, this guy is in this movie again. And but like when you really start to watch directors and writers, you're like, oh, they like to work with people they know and people they they know the performance they're gonna yeah. get. And so she wrote this pilot with me and Brian Posehn in mind, and she wrote it with uh, Rob Schraub and Dan Harmon, who um, up at, up until that point their biggest claim to fame was they wrote a pilot called Heat Vision and Jack, um, oh, yeah. which was Jack Black as an astronaut, and he had a talking motorcycle vo- voiced by Owen Wilson, <laughs> and Jack's... That's yeah. available on YouTube. I've by the way, that the, yeah. at, that, at that point in time, the most expensive pilot Fox had ever made, <laughs> and it the whole bit was Jack was an astronaut, and he flew too close to the sun, and it baked his brain, so whenever it's daylight... He is the smartest man in the world. <laughs> and NASA is trying to get his brain out of his head to study him. So it's a movie where he's always on the road, different adventures in different towns, and he's riding on a talking motorcycle, like Knight Rider. It is so funny. It's on YouTube. Go look at it. It's really funny. But um, they made this, directed by Ben Stiller, incredibly expensive. Fox had to make the decision after they made this pilot do we make more episodes of Heat Vision and Jack, or do we pick up Malcolm in the Middle? <laughs> and so we all got Malcolm in the Middle. And looking back, you're like, I guess Fox made a good decision because Malcolm in the Middle went on for like a decade and made a yeah. lot of people rich. Um, I forgot the question. No, that's it. <laughs> oh yeah, people working with friends. But so yes. Well, I'm just Sarah I'm... wrote this for her friends. I had never acted before. I'd yep. done stand-up and music and stuff. Sarah wrote that for me. And so when she they started casting, Comedy Central's like, okay, who are we going to hire as Steve? And she's like, oh, it's Steve. I wrote it for Steve. And <laughs> Comedy Central was like, no, we don't know who this is. We want somebody with some who we can see, you know, footage of, clips of. And so Sarah called me. She's like, they don't want to hire you. Trust me, I will not do this unless we can hire you. She's like, but, and I used to make really dumb, like embarrassing short films, you know, with just random video cameras in my house. I have one called Cry Baby, where I'm walking around my house crying and I'm naked. <laughs> Stuff like that. I have another video. It starts off with me getting up out of bed. <laughs> it's, this is a theme. Naked, walking through my living room, into the bathroom, sitting on the toilet, grunting incredibly standing up and turning around and there is a full tin can of soup <laughs> that I've just pooped out and I'm like oh that's where that went like shit like that Sarah's like put all those on a DVD and give it to me and I'll give it to Comedy Central I was like I don't know if this is going to help you this might get your whole show canceled and they bought it they were just like 
<sighs> okay. So what? So what? It, I want to kind of drill into that because I'm so- like Forrest Gump, dude. I don't know how I got to where I am, but it is a weird. But I think, trail. I think part of it is, as you said, as you identified, that thing of people wanting people they know they can work well with. And there is mm. something about you which is genuine, that is like the opposite of someone in L.A. who's desperate to get work. Yeah, I'll do it. You know, sure. she says, she said to you, do you want to come and do this thing? And you're like, I get panic attacks. I don't want to do it. You know, and th- there is I put some- that out. I put that out when someone's like, hey, we're doing this show. It's a live show. I'm always like, okay, but you should know this about me. There's a chance I'll freak out and run off stage. I learned this early on, with not early on, but when I came to L.A. and realized that panic attacks are very common. When I was younger and would have them as a teenager, there was no internet. I thought something was wrong with me. I thought I was dying. I assumed I had a tumor in my head. And so I just lived with this for years. How, fr- how frequently are we talking? Would you have a panic Oh, once a year as a teenager, when I got into college, it started happening like once a month. When I got into LA and started, I was, I used to work in reality TV. My first jobs in TV were Real World, Road Rules, The Osbournes, Temptation Island, Joe Millionaire. I was working in reality TV and I started to get to a point where I would have like 10 panic attacks a day. It, it ended with me in the middle of writing at Joe Millionaire, and I just started to sweat. My heart started to race. I put my phone down, got up, started to walk out of the building. My supervisor was like, where are you going? I was like, uh, I, I have to make a deposit at the bank. I'll be right back. <laughs> Knowing good and well I was never coming back. I went to my house, and I did not leave for four months. I became highly agoraphobic and um, they were calling and calling and calling and I was just screening my calls, just ignoring my problems. And then I called, I actually called Sarah one night crying. I was like, I I can't leave my house. I don't know what to do. And she was like, when we first met, you told me you have panic attacks. She's like, this is panic attacks, dude. She's like, you need to go see my shrink. And I went and they put me on Lexapro, it's antidepressant. It's really an (laughs) anti-anxiety. Lexapro. <laughs> this is South by. That's probably Dude, the CEO of. It Lexapro. saved my life. I'm still on it like 17 years later. Within two weeks, I was. And look, maybe it was uh, you know a placebo effect. I don't care. Within two weeks, I stopped having panic attacks. I don't really have them anymore. I get anxiety. You know, there are times when I want to run off stage. And believe me, I wouldn't be afraid to do it. I got to a point with panic attacks when I realized how common they were. I could be sitting talking to somebody and start to sweat, heart start to race. They could be mid-sentence and I would just go and walk away. And then I would just call them the next day and go, sorry, I had a panic attack. Sometimes I'd say, I'm having a panic, panic attack. I have to leave this room. Yeah. If we go outside, it will probably have stopped by the time we get outside. Um, but yeah, it was problematic for years. Jesus, what a thing to live with. Yeah. It, it was crazy because as a teenager, no internet, I thought I was losing my mind. I came to L.A. with other like-minded artistic people. And I remember one time I was at my friend Damon's house. And I was like, I was like, man, I was at, uh, I was at this restaurant last night and my heart started to race, and I thought I was dying, dude. And I got up and I ran out of the restaurant, just left dinner. 
I go, as soon as I got outside, it was gone. He's like, yeah, that's a panic attack, dude. I get them all the time. Once I started talking about it and other people started replying, it was, it was the most liberating. Talking about this stuff is the most liberating shit you can do. Mm-hmm. Like, I will talk about it with anybody, anywhere, anytime. I could cry. Um, it's very important, you know? Thank you. We should quit right now. Yeah. They're clapping. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Of I course. Think, of course. I think the um, that genuine quality that I was talking about before when, you know, as opposed to lots of people in, a, in L.A. who one would imagine would kind of stab their best friend for a gig, yeah. that, that when Sarah comes to you and says, I'm going to put you in this thing, you go, well, you should know. I don't know if I'm capable. I don't know if I want to do it. Up front, and, yeah. and that quality, it, not just the honesty, but also... Oh, well, you know, there's something quite attractive about that. Something that isn't sure. like it's the opposite of kind of grasping and ambition. In my head, it's always better to be up front and be like, there's a chance halfway through our show, yeah. <laughs> like, just like the play that I did where I met her, I'm like, I might end up on a Coke bender in Las Vegas and you'll never see me again. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't a Coke head or anything, but like with panic attacks and stuff and the stress of, you know, this this mental health issue, you never know what you're going to do. A lot of people become drug addicts yeah. because of their mental health issues. Yeah. So I was always up front with anybody offering me a, a job. Like, yeah. I get really scared and freaked out, man. And the, most of the people I've worked with are so great. All, all of, Almost all of them are like, I get the same way, so we're good. How does that affect, or how has how has your career as a comic and as an actor kind of grown around knowing that that's a sort of an ever-present possibility? A freaking out? Yeah. Just in terms of, because I, I mean, the, the, the two things that, that come to mind are this issue of you being really genuine and likable, and we know that you know you're you're a, a, a fixture in the James Gunn cinematic sure, universe. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you've got a good working relationship yeah, with yeah. James Gunn. You've done loads of shows with him. Um, so there, there's that kind of the the honesty and the openness kind of quality. Well, as far as the people like James or Sarah, people that I've worked with a lot, I'm less concerned with what could happen to me. And they are already aware of what <laughs> what I'm capable of. And by the way, it's all a lot of what ifs sure. because of my openness and my the fact that I do talk therapy, the the fact that I am on Lexapro. I've really solved a lot of my problems. Yeah. I'm not as worried, but I just want to let people know. Um, but I feel very comfortable. You know, I haven't had like a panic attack in like 17 years, so it's like. It's really kind of back of the brain shit, like eh, that tiger is in there somewhere. Sure. But let's just work and see what happens. Because well, that's the 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 one of the issues I think with a lot of comics, a lot and a lot of actors as well, is waiting for work. You know, when you're busy, yeah, when you're, fun. do you know what I mean? Like the, there are certain ways in which both of those jobs, both of those roles, can be really unhealthy. As a comic, you get really hooked on the the dopamine and that kind of roller coaster. Yes. Not necessarily a very mentally healthy set of circumstances, unless you kind of seize it. Yes, downtime for a lot of creative-minded people, not even creative-minded people, most people. Downtime is not good time. Some people are like, I'm going to go fishing. I love this downtime. But there are people who like to have something to do and keep busy. When we shot Peacemaker in Vancouver in 2021, 
uh, season one. Um, this was early COVID, no vaccines. They could not afford to shut our production down. So, because James had to, had such a tight schedule, he was like, I have to leave the week after we finish shooting here in Vancouver and go to Atlanta and start Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I am on a schedule, you know, and it was happening around, you know, the business, like someone would get COVID and a production would shut down for two weeks. And James was like, we can't do that. So we were all aware of this and we would just kind of, we'd go and shoot and then we would all go back to our individual residences, hotels. And most of the people who were up there were there, were married, had their significant others. I think I was the only one in the cast who was single. Mm. And um, it could have been dangerous, but again, I'm on medication. I I have a hobby, which is photography. Mm. So I am good. British Columbia is a photo is a photographer's dream. Mm. So I was fine, but there were people like Robert Patrick who played John Cena's father. Great actor, really cool dude. You know, he was Terminator too. He was there with his wife, and he would just randomly call me, going, "Hey, Stevie, it's Bobby. Uh, just because there would be times where you'd have like two weeks off." And you couldn't leave the country because you'd have to quarantine for two weeks mm-hmm. when you came back. So you just have two weeks. And Robert would just be like, Babs, and, <laughs> Barbara is his wife. He's like, Babs and I are just checking in, man. We know how lonely it can be up here. And he's like, if I was by myself, I'd probably start drinking again. He's like, so I just want to let you know if you need somebody to talk to. Like, I really work with amazing people. And I, th- yeah. I think that's very important as well. Getting looked after by Terminator 2 is pretty special. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Having the T-1000 call me on the phone is pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. So with with that show, now Peacemaker is one of my favorite shows of the last oh, few you. years. It's, I'm so, I was so excited to know you were going to be on the podcast. And I have to say, you, it, I mean, obviously the beard is an issue within that show. But Die beard. You, you, <laughs> you, you, uh, when I saw you, I, was, I barely recognized you because... I shot something last week where I, I had to wear makeup, and I was so bummed because I had my beard, and you know, there's a whole running gag through the first season of Peacemaker where John Cena is making fun of me for dyeing my beard, right? And so I had to have this big, ugly dyed beard, which you had to have in real life. That was a real beard, right? Yes. Yeah, so, I my my beard is very gray, and I'm 54, so it's gray. And when we did Suicide Squad, James the character of John Economist who I played is is an actual character from the comic books in DC. And he was a guy who had a beard and he had dark hair. So when I went to do makeup tests, James was like, I think we need to dye your beard. I was like, okay. And I dyed it like a normal person would (laughs) dye their beard and went and showed him. And he's like, you know, it'd be really funny is if it was obviously dyed, like, jet black like shoe polish ugly dyed this is not peacemaker this is the suicide squad movie and i'm like i guess that would be funny i'm like it's funny for you and everyone watching but when you say cut at the end of the day i have to go into atlanta and walk around looking like a fucking psychopath and at that point we weren't dying the roots gray it was just I had this black, I'm red hair. I'm red haired. And I had a black fucking beard. I looked so fucking gross. And I would go into Starbucks and be like, oh, yeah, can I get a grande latte? And you could see the people like, 
not looking in my eyes, but like <laughs> looking and like, fuck, it was embarrassing shit, man. Um, again, I forgot the question. Did you? Oh, well. the dye beard. So, yes. Yeah, so we do the movie. There's no payoff to me dyeing my beard. Everyone's laughing at me the whole time. We we do the TV show, and James has written into all the episodes. John Cena is calling me Die Beard the whole time. And my character is like, uh, it's not dyed. <laughs> and it is clearly dyed because there are gray roots around it. And that's the whole bit. And when I got the script, I was like, okay, that's funnier. And then we get to the last episode. I won't spoil yeah. it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's justified in the final episode. A huge monologue about why I dye my beard. And I was like, holy shit. This is like an Emmy award-winning monologue. It, and it, it's so good. I was it, like, he fucking paid this shit off. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the that's one of the great skills I think of of James Gunn is he's able to find the kind of the mundane elements of the superhero characters and the heroic elements of the of the more mundane the normal people. That's one. I mean, that's part of why the show is so good. And it, that final yeah. monologue, like you said, it's an absolutely it is, incredible it resolution. Plagued me somewhat. I went. When I first got back from – when the show first aired, I had a doctor's appointment, and I go uh, I go to the doctor for just a checkup, and I'm sitting – it's the first time with this doctor, and I'm sitting in the examining room, and uh, she walks in, closes the door, turns around. We have never met. She sees me, and she goes, oh, hey, dye beard. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. <laughs> and it happens sometimes, but – it's a great gig, and I mean that kind of stuff just means people are watching. So I I don't yeah. mind. Yeah. So that you know we were talking before. You haven't actually shot Peacemaker two yet. Waiting. James is now like the Kevin Feige of yeah. DC, so he's making he's a timeline. Plotting everything. We yeah. probably should be shooting it right now, but with him making a new timeline for DC, he's having to shuffle to put some things before it. So it will happen. It's season two is coming. Yeah. Yeah. And are you um, now that you're in the gang in the in the uh, James Gunn cinematic universe, yeah. you know, now that you're one of the uh, uh, one of the people with whom he's had such a positive experience and, you, you know, you were in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 as yeah. Jeff. Yeah. Um, is there like do you know, do you have any sense of whether Economist is going to exist? You'll see. You'll, yeah, you'll see him in other stuff. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I was not expecting what? that. That's very exciting. I won't exciting. say what, but <laughs> you know how in like the Avengers movies, there's like, Coulson you see Kobe Smulders character, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm not going to be starring and beating up people, but like, I'll walk in and out of a room. But here you never know with James Gunn, there could you be an economist. I killed a gorilla with a chainsaw in like the fourth episode of Peacemaker. Tell me about killing a gorilla with a chainsaw. When I got the scripts, that was... The first thing that I was like, I cannot wait until this day. <laughs> when we got the schedule, I circled it in my calendar. I was like, I'm going to kill a gorilla with a chainsaw on this day. It was the greatest. I mean, it's CG, but I get covered in blood. That's yeah. like, a, as an actor, there's certain things you want to experience. You want to be killed by, you know, a, you know, a monster. You want to fight somebody, you know, you want to ride a horse and run through an explosion or something. Oh, yeah, man. You want to walk away calmly as something blows up behind you without flinching, you know. 
and and the one, killing a monster with a chainsaw is now off my list. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the one of the exciting things, I guess, uh, for someone who you know, when you start off with the character of of John Economos, he's a, he's one of the backroom guys, which is sort of a not that you're kind of typecast, but as a character actor, you presumably like I've seen you do small roles in things yeah, yeah. where you're like you're an ensemble a character member. actor. It's what we do. Yeah. 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 But I also on that movie I did the motion capture for King Shark. I was <laughs> but, my majority of the Suicide Squad was running around in a little gray, you know, bodysuit saying nom nom and hand and bird and we, that was me. That was me. I've seen some of the footage for that because that character is so lovable. And one of the things I, I've only seen tiny clips of you inside, like, you know, the head shape with <laughs> yeah, the ping pong yeah. ball eyes and stuff. Yeah. Were you when you were in the scenes, were you doing the face? Were you acting, or were you yeah, just kind yeah, of being the? You know, I, you know, the I, I'm there for Margot Robbie, and like I'm having to like say lines and do shit so she can react. Like you have to do it so they can react. Yeah. I can't just sit there looking at a paper going, nom nom, book read, hand <laughs> me do disguise. Like yeah, you have to like just do it. And were you? I mean, you're a you're a great voice actor. You've done voices loads of. Cut- thank you, thank you, Stu. Were you thank ever you, in? It means a lot. Were you ever in the frame to be the voice of King Shark? No, it, it's funny though because when we had the first table read um, in August or September, it was September of 2019. It was the first time the whole cast had gathered in the studio and uh, in Atlanta and. And uh, they had the table set up, and like I have Margot Robbie and Idris Elba sitting next to me, and I'm so nervous. And uh, we sit down to start, and as they start to read the stage directions, it hits me in my head. I've not talked to James at all about what he wants the shark to sound like. So I just make up like it's a giant walking shark, so I try and sound as mean and nom nom, like terrifying and. So we have like two weeks of rehearsals and I'm doing that. And then James calls me one night. He's like, yeah, that voice isn't really doing it for me. And so, you know, on your iPhone, like you have that me emoji where you can talk and it will animate the face of like a, a squirrel or a rabbit uh, yeah, yeah. or a tiger or a shark. So for like a whole weekend, <laughs> I would record the shark doing different voices and I would send them to James. <laughs> I was doing stuff like Woody Allen. I was like, num, 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 num. <laughs> Me read a book. And James would, LOL. And he's like, fuck no. <laughs> you know. And, uh, and then one day, you know, it was right when we started. He's like, he's like, I'm hearing like Stallone. He's like, just do it. Think of like Stallone, but even more Stallone. Like he's searching for the words. Like it's Stallone where English isn't even his first language. And so the whole shoot, I was just like, hey, nom nom, baby <laughs> book. I was just doing a Stallone impression. He didn't even know he was going to hire Stallone at this point. It wasn't until like three quarters of the way through the movie that they're like, yeah, we're starting to reach out and audition people for The Voice. And I was always in my head going, why don't you just give this to Stallone? That's what I'm doing. That's what you asked for. And... Yeah. um I think James didn't think that Stallone would do it, and he asked him, and Stallone was like, yeah, yeah, of course I'll do it. That'd be great. Yeah. I always want to be a cartoon, you know? You're like the, uh, what's the guy that was in the, the suit for Darth Vader? Is it Dave Prowse? 
Yeah. Some British guy who then was like, he was Darth Vader. James Earl Jones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, James Earl Jones takes over. Yeah, yeah. 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 So tell me about the effect that doing that kind of work had with you. Because I think I heard on another podcast that you were on that before you started working on that show, you weren't in a great place. Work-wise, I mean, oh, no. Mental health-wise. So this was, yes. So we started shooting Peacemaker, uh, not Peacemaker, Suicide Squad. I would not worked in a while. Things were going really slow. We started, things were going awesome. Towards the end of the shoot, we were on Christmas vacation, and I took my mom to the doctors for a regular uh, checkup, and um, a couple days later, I get an offer to do an episode of The Connors, you know, uh, playing John Goodman's friend. Dream come true. Mm. And it's the night before, and I'm in L.A. in a hotel and uh, waiting to go shoot. My mom calls crying. She's like, I've just been diagnosed with leukemia. Oh, and knowing that and also the fact that I had now had to go also go back to um, to where we were shooting in Panama, the exteriors of Suicide Squad. Like my mom is now sick and I now have to go work, which was mind blowing for me. It was so hard to concentrate. And, you know, and I was just calling her daily. And then I came back. You know, Feb- end of February was I. Sh- I came back and I should have been looking for a house because I had to give my apartment up to go shoot this movie. My landlord wouldn't let me, you know, sublet. So I gave everything up and uh, my plan was I'm going to come back. I'll have money. I'll find a house. And I instead spent all my time with my mom. And then the pandemic started and they were like, you can't come visit anymore. And so I was like, I don't have a place to live either. And so I had a friend who had like a cabin. It was a shack out in Joshua Tree, out in the desert, where I lived for like four months, just by myself, not knowing what was going on. My mom died about three weeks into this happening by herself in a hospital, which really fucks you up. Of course. The guilt and... um. So yeah, I ha- I was not dealing with this well. I was just like not making money. I w- had nowhere to live. No one was showing apartments because of this lockdown. I was sweating my ass off in the Mojave Desert summers. And um and then October came, still just a wreck trying to, you know, decipher my mom's, you know, estate and everything remotely and and then James calls me in October of 2020 and he's like, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to get your hopes up, but I wrote a TV series spinoff from Suicide Squad with John Cena's character. He's like, you're one of the main characters. I was like, holy shit, thank you. And he's like, we start shooting in like two months. Like he really didn't tell me mm-hmm. until it was all set. And he's like, be in Vancouver in December. He sa- mentally saved me because I got to stay busy with the show, you know. And um, there, that was also a time I was not, oddly, weirdly, not seeing a therapist. Talk about needing it the most. But I was just like, you know, the things you do when you're in, you're grieving. And, you know, once I started work, it's weird. When I start working, 
I can do so much more stuff like schedule, <laughs> schedule therapy, you know, meditate, go, you know, on photo trips. And like James has saved my life many times, many times. Uh, when James produced a movie called Belco Experiment, this horror movie that um, I believe one of his brothers wrote. And um, it was shooting in uh, South America. And um, he had written a part for me and was going to go down, spend the summer in South America shooting this movie. Two days before I am supposed to fly down and start working, two days before I start working, um, my mom calls me, your dad's in the hospital, he's in intensive care, it's not good. And so I have to call James crying, going, I don't want to leave you high and dry, but my dad is dying, and I think I should stay here. And James was like, yeah. He goes, James was like, I would be disappointed in you if you decided to go to South America. Yeah. And so he was like, I'll find something else. <laughs> He's like, I'll find something else for you. That ended up being Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is something that people actually heard of instead yeah. of Belko. <laughs> um, but yeah. And even further back, you know, a movie did called Super with Rain Wilson. And uh, oh, yeah. I was living in a studio apartment, unable to pay rent, which was just like $1,000. And again, he wrote a part for me. I was supposed to go to Shreveport, to Louisiana for two weeks. It had, it was th that movie was so low budget though. He was like, you have to be a local hire, which means I have to pay to get myself to Louisiana. I have to put myself up. And I didn't have money, but I was like, I love James. I love everything he does. And this was even before his superhero stuff. So I was like, I'm gonna make it happen. Two weeks before that shoots. I get a call going, they want you, uh, CBS has a recurring part for you on Two Broke Girls, and it pays a shitload of money. And I was like, fuck! And I call James, and I go, look, I am broke. I go, I've just been offered a recurring part on this sitcom. I go, I want to, I don't, I would much rather do your movie. Yeah. I go... James and I are like the same age too. I go, I look up to you like a father. If you tell me to just go to Shreveport, I won't even think twice. I will be there. And he goes, are you fucking kidding me? He's like, go do that TV show and make some fucking money. I'll find something else for you. So when they did reshoots, he put me in a scene, you know, with Rain Wilson in a comic book. James is the greatest, the greatest most loyal friend in the world. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And now he's running the show at DC. Running DC. Man. Yeah. Let Before we wrap up, um, are you happy doing some audience Q&A? Absolutely. If anyone has any uh, burning questions, feel free. I've got another question while you have a little think. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about um, success. And I want to talk to you about the extent to which you feel like you have enough. I've always... I'm always happy when I can just pay my rent. That is success for me. You know, when we were doing Sarah Silverman show, Comedy Central, lowest paying job, but I could pay my rent. I was like, I was so happy. I was like, I've made it. I'm, I don't have to work at Starbucks anymore. I don't have to write shit for Joe Millionaire anymore. Yeah. You know, I don't have to write stuff in a reality TV show that didn't happen to make some fucker look bad. 
you know, like I, I, I think I'm convinced a lot of my anxiety during those days was guilt of making people look shitty on reality TV who in reality were fucking nice people. Yeah. Right. Um, and so when I left that world and was finally able to do like Sarah's show or, you know, I was working on the Jimmy Kimmel show, I'm happy always just paying my bills, doing what I love. That's success for me. Yeah. Does that, are you, does that mean that your ambition or the element of you, which is ambition? Oh, there's obviously like the stuff where I was like, I want to kill a gorilla with a chain. There's <laughs> shit I want to do. I want to do a Western. But that's like bucket list. That's not success. Yeah. That's yeah, like yeah. cherry on the top stuff. So th- I only ask this of people who I consider very successful. Why aren't you even more successful? Because there's a because ch- there's always a chance I might end up in Vegas on a coke bender. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I but we there's like- no more successful for me. I'm exactly where I want to be. I'm extremely happy doing what I do. I you know have time to come and do this and be in Texas. You know, while I wait to do season two, and couldn't be better. That makes me really yeah, happy yeah, to yeah. hear. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Of course, thank you. Do we have, do we have any questions? Raise a hand if you have a question. Uh, over there, there is a question over there. So the question is, thank you for the question. It's, uh, it's about the the space between being a shy, creative person and being on stage, and how you navigate that. Well, as a comedian, it's so much easier for me to come on stage and talk about hemorrhoids, like really embarrassing shit about my life. It is so easy because I want to make people laugh. That makes people laugh. If I was in a coffee shop talking to someone like going, oh my God, I have hemorrhoids and like I have to go get laser surgery. And someone at the next table was like, ew, fucking gross. I'd be like, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh my God. I'm so, but I will come up here and talk about anything. you know, and it's, and it does take time. It takes, you know, when I started doing stand-up, I would not eat for the day, the whole day leading up to me doing a show because of my fear of throwing up. I was like, what if I'm on stage and I puke? What if I eat a bad hamburger and then that night on stage I puke? So I wouldn't fucking eat. And then one day I'm at a show and I am backstage and I'm like, I think I'm going to fucking faint. <laughs> Fuck throwing up. I think I'm going to faint. It, can I get a burger? Uh, you know, I told the, the house to, if I could get a cheeseburger. I ate. I went out on a full stomach, had the best show. I was like, oh, my God. Why didn't somebody tell me this? Um, it's a learning, you know, it's I still get I'm terrified that I'm doing stand-up tonight for the first time in like three or four years. I am. I can't tell you the sleep, the sleepless nights I've had this week. I am legitimately scared. Um, so it's a matter of being terrified and just doing it regardless. And fuck what anybody else thinks. You know, if your if your thing is I'm a painter. I'm embarrassed to show my stuff. Who? F- it's easier for me to say, who fucking cares? Of course, you fucking care. You don't want people to be like, ew. But the times when you do it and it 
people say, hey, I really like that painting you did, or hey, that monologue you had in that play was really good, makes it way more worth the one fucking idiot who's like, eh, that's gross. I don't get this painting. Yeah. That's the that's one of the most exciting things about stand up is how immediate that that reaction can be. So or can't or, or can't be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that you know like I'm just gonna do it anyway, and you get a laugh, and you're like, well, I got that. That's mine. You know. So it, it, yeah, it's a you know, it's like an addiction. It's a chasing the dragon. It's always, it's I'm still to this day chasing that very first time I did an open mic, and all my friends were laughing. I'm chasing that every time. I'm chasing that when I do a TV show and, you know, the director says, that was great. I, I don't need to do another take. If I'm ready to move on if you are. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know? That's, I, that's something I didn't ask, actually, about the way James Gunn works and the direction whereby he just seems to leave so much space. Like, do you do, like, multiple takes where he's like, let's get a serious one? It's one of the play. One of the best things is working with a writer-director. James writes the stuff that he directs. And so by the time we've gotten to set, he's done so many rewrites. He has storyboarded it. He's figured out the mu- music. He knows exactly in his head when he has what he needs. So there are times we go in, I say a line, like I come in, I'll be like, hey, man, it smells like someone farted in here. James will be like, great, we're moving on. There will be other times where I'll be like, hey, man, it smells like someone farted in here. And he's like, let's do it again. And we can do it a hundred fucking times. It's not until it's right in his head. So there's times where we fly through stuff because it's just clicking and working the way he wants it. And then there are times where it's just not quite there. And you know you're in you're in the bad zone where he when he says, one more time. Because you're gonna hear that about a thousand more times. Yeah. Hey, it smells like who farted in here? One more time. Oh fuck, here we go. And you, hey, just, you and, just have to offer. And you know, it's it, 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 we're not going to stop until we get it, which is great. I mean, that's the joy of working with a writer director, you know. Yeah. Through therapy, I've learned I have a uh, I have control issues. Throwing up, and I've only done it like four times in my life. Throwing up is a complete to me loss of control. You know, oh, wow. It, I wouldn't and have it's asked also, that. That was that was a, a really pleasingly abrupt question. That it's I a few have different. Myself. It's a no, answer. no. I'm glad we <laughs> can talk about this. It's a few different issues. It's a a fear of losing control because once it's happening, that shit's fucking happening wherever you are. If I was right here, I'd be like, you get to watch a guy throw up. Congratulations. <laughs> or if I'm in my hotel, it's happening. Um. And then you throw that in with my uh, fear of being embarrassed. And I know that's a really weird thing to say, as I mentioned earlier about I'll come out here and talk about anything. But if I'm on an airplane Mm -hmm. and I just puke into my lap, it would be mortifying. So you've only only vomited four times in your life. Four or five. Probably three of them were from being drunk in high school. Okay. I was 18 the last time I threw up. I beer bonged a bottle of champagne, a 12-pack of beer, funneled, bottle of champagne, 12-pack of beer, drank a pint of rum. I, by the way, don't remember any of it. This is what I was told. Holy shit. And then I, the first thing I remember was waking up in my bed at my parents' house puking. 
Oh, I mean, Shocker. I, I, I feel like I could develop a lifelong fear. And by the way, I was after that experience. I was sick for a week after that, and that's kind of when I just really stopped drinking. Yeah, I never went into a program. Uh, I just remember after a while going, eh, you know, that that just the fact that I might throw up from drinking has yeah. just stopped me from drinking. <laughs> I'll do it every now and then. A friend will be like, "I have this 30-year-old scotch." I'll be like. I have to try that, you know, yeah. and I'm fine, but yeah. Is there, there's got to be a relationship between the fear of humiliation and the fact of doing stand-up, meaning that you can I'm control, taking it back. You can control yes. the parameters I'm, I'm, of... I'm claiming and controlling it. Yes, yeah. 100%. I remember, I know I have another question, uh, which we can probably just fit in. You um, you had your set list you were working on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's nobody there, by the way. <laughs> uh, so brave. <laughs> I'm a, Brave actor. You were working on your set list earlier on, and it looked, you had a little yellow pad. Do you have it with you? Yeah. Because there. Well, I rewrote it for you, like more legible. What, well, I was going to say part of what was so enjoyable was it looked like the diary of a madman because the, you'd repeatedly. It's a thing I do. I will take okay. a set list, and then I will sit and just trace over it just to uh, just ingrain it in my head. Okay, so we're opening with Amazon Wishlist. Okay. Okay, and then you've got Night Sweats, Glancing Left, love that as a premise, Uh, Preparation H. What was the first one? Uh, Amazon Wishlist. So it's, I talk a lot, I used to be a rock climbing instructor. A lot has happened to my body in 50 years. (laughs) Um, Once I moved to LA and started writing and acting and taking desk jobs, everything like just started growing outward. But um, so a lot of it is about my poor shape. Like the wish list is I recently put a coffin on my Amazon wish list (laughs) because I started waking up in the middle of the night with night sweats. That's how out of shape I am. Sleep is an activity. I remember I saw some stuff on on YouTube of yours. Like the, it was uploaded 12 years ago. I don't know how. Whether yeah, these are old jokes, man. That stuff that you can't but get rid of. Still is real today. Yeah, but that, what I really liked was how silly. I really liked how absurd your stuff. But all based on truth. Like I threw my neck out two months ago, glancing to the left. <laughs> I was in a car, and I saw something in my peripheral vision. And not far peripheral vision. It was like right off the hood ornament. Here's how far I turned my head to throw my neck out for two weeks. Did you guys see that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's self-deprecating. That's Open casket, and then you're going to close. Open, open casket. I was high with my friend Sam, and he was like, hey, man, what are you going to do when you die? And I go, what? And he goes, with your glasses. I go, what do you mean? And he goes, if you have an open casket funeral, you have to be buried with your glasses on because everybody, as long as we've known you, you've worn glasses and it'll be weird to look in a casket at you without your glasses on. And I'm just like, um, how about it would be weird to look at me in a casket? <laughs> and I will be buried with them on because I think as a comedian it'll be hilarious. And in like two years there will be a skeleton with glasses on. <laughs> and like loose, you've lost your ears and nose. So also like all of eternity now I'm the fucking skeleton with crooked glasses while my OCD soul screams from above. 
I can think. I'm remembering these. This is very well, reassuring. Well, I was going to say, it's beautiful to me that this has become a little kind of road test warm up for your. Yeah, gig this tonight. is very. This is actually a good. Walk off the stage. Read people. through. Okay. Regroup. Um, I won't ask you to give us your closer because we have run out of time, sadly. But if you want to see it, you've got to come back here at when? 10 tonight? 10 tonight. To Esther's Follies to see the triumphant return. Less than three hours. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> my voice just you cracked. You should be feeling better now. I do feel better. I feel better. You guys have been fucking amazing. You're going to crush it. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, folks, please join me in thanking Steve Agee. Thank you. Thank you. This is great. So that was Steve. Thank you so much to everyone. Thanks, everyone at Esther's Follies. Uh, thanks to Charlie Sotelo and uh, everyone at South By who looked after me and especially did such a great job in lighting, recording, promoting and uh, being wonderful about this live podcast. It's a glorious festival and I really feel very at home there. Um, thanks to Steve. Uh, you can follow Steve at Steve AG on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, you can follow me at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy on Instagram and TikTok if you are so inclined, or you can follow at ComComPod on Twitter. You can get in touch with me with questions about the show or kind of engage with the uh, the podcast community, which we never came up with an official name for, but there's a bunch of disparate humans and they're very lovely. And uh, they all congregate on the Facebook group, which you can find if you use Facebook. Um, uh, that what was I going to say? Oh yes, I'll post down below uh, about lovely Gareth Richards in in just a second. Um, and you can do everything else you need to do at comedianscomedian.com or indeed stuartgoldsmith.com, which I'm sort of pointing everyone to at the moment until, until I sort out the pod website, which is creaking, and that's my fault. Um, check out uh, I Need You Alive. Check out uh, Peacemaker and uh, all of those things. That'll do for now. Oh, I love that. I really, I've got such fond memories of, of talking to Stephen live in, in that episode. More coming out soon from um, uh, from South by Southwest. We are going to do, who are we doing? Oh, we've just done John Hastings last week. So coming up, we've got Lucy Beaumont. We've got Ignacio Lopez. Um, we've got Emma Willman from South by. And uh, who else do we have at South by? Someone brilliant, James Adomian. Oh my God, wonderful. Uh, and I am putting in more as we go. And I will tell you when they are safely in the can. Go away. Or stick around for the post tumble. But go away. So I just wanted to use this post tumble to say a few words about my friend Gareth Richards, who uh, died a couple of weeks, well, a week ago, I think. And um, he, it was uh, one of the, what, well, I mean, what do you say? What could you even say? I just want to just kind of, I just want to sort of flag how lovely he was. He's just everything I want in a comedian. He was just imaginative and inventive and creative and different and forging his own path and lovely and kind and humble. And it, you, you just can't think of a worse person for it to happen to. My heart goes out to his family, his children. Um, and um, he just seemed to the last time I spoke to him, he came and did a, a, a show for me at a gig that I run in Bristol and he headlined and was just wonderful. And I before that, I'd um, I'd seen him recently at uh, someone's show in, in Exeter where he'd headlined and was wonderful. And it was one of those one of those kind of gear change shows where you see someone you go, bloody hell, I've been paying attention. And that comic has leveled up. And he really had, and as well as as well as kind of finding his place in 
comedy more and more as you know there isn't a sort of ultimate place to be found is there it's all just a smudge it's all just a sort of a smear where you go i do this and i do this more and i do this and then eventually it stops um but he was definitely on one of the the kind of the high higher kind of points of that roller coaster ride and as well as all of that as well as all of that sort of you know technical skill and self-expression and all the brilliant things that comedy brings you he just seemed like he'd worked out who he was and he was happy now and i'm very glad that he uh uh got to inhabit all of that before his passing i don't know what to say i don't know what to say i may not include this i i you know it's really difficult because in the way that the comedy circuit works you you get to be friends with people and then i mean this comes up on the pod all the time you sort of you you get people who you think oh if i spent more time with them i think we'd be much much deeper friends like when we when we saw each other in november he he and this is uh, something i'm just gutted about he he said hey he said i could do with a pep talk and you're quite you know I, I like the way your mind works and i think let's have a can we have a chat and i was like yeah totally and i'm just so constantly fucking busy spinning plates and everything i said yeah great can you do some time in and it was something nuts like it was in november and i said how about in kind of late january and he said you know by the time we sort of got back to each other and stuff he said um uh, do you know what? I think I'm all right, which is great to, to hear that you sort of go, oh, yeah, actually, I don't need that now. Brilliant. That's, you know, that's the the, the ultimate thing is for like that's the best case scenario, isn't it? That someone goes, actually, I don't need a pet talk. I feel great now. Um, but also I just had I made the effort uh, or had I had I prioritized things differently, then I'd have had to I'd have been able to spend a good hour one on one with my friend who I only really ever saw at, at gigs always got on with and just in that way that comedy works you just think oh if i saw more of this guy we'd be much much closer friends so um it's uh i don't know i don't know i really i tell you what i will say is um something i hadn't experienced before so much you know if someone super famous passes away on facebook everyone's got their rick mail story or whatever and that's lovely you know and you you kind of engage with that but I've, I suppose I've just been really lucky with death and I've not really had friends. Um, I've not really been there for so much of the, the sort of outpouring of love and celebration of someone's life that, that happened on comedians, Facebook and on Twitter and stuff. And um, and it was really when I was very, a couple of times I've recently, I, I've been very, very upset and just been able to search his name on Facebook or whatever and just see so many people saying such beautiful and positive things it almost made me feel for a moment like facebook was good <laughs> like you know what i mean like oh oh wow this sort of uh, one of these awful time sucking social life quashing apps actually has a, a purpose it was really really positive because i didn't know kind of who to ring or who to talk to about it and it was just it really fulfilled a, a purpose for me in seeing so many people celebrate my very funny friend and um i don't know i don't know what else to say it's fucking it sort of feels ridiculous talking about something as momentous as as someone you care about passing away talking about it on a podcast it sort of just seems stupid doesn't it um but he was everything that you would want he'd every, he's everything i would want to be as a comic he was he was kind and humble and um and really really funny and he made people happy and i think he made himself happy 
and uh, what more can you say than that so i am holding gareth richards in my thoughts um with all love to his family and also i am singing uh the song about his friend who's like a fridge around the house and i will continue to do that for some time bye for now hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.